This morning we're going to be in Hebrews 3 and 4. Um, interestingly enough, this is going to be the third sermon um, in um, our, our series on the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. Um, it's, it's, you maybe have bitten off more than you can chew or have realized your pastor has done so in his sermon series on, on the Sabbath, I mean on the Ten Commandments. And, um, and it's been fun to kind of nestle into each commandment and, and teach on it. My goal, and, and generally, is the first sermon on the commandment to say this is, this is what it points about God's character. Um, the second sermon on um, each commandment is this is the specifics of that commandment, uh, what the scriptures teach and how you um, obey that. And the third commandment shows that you know, all of the law finds its culmination in Jesus the Christ. And so that's where we're kind of headed this morning. I'm thinking about at least one more on the Sabbath and come up with some of the specifics of some, some people who don't think the Sabbath still in effect, some who do, and kind of talk about um, some of the different debates around the Sabbath. Um, if, if that's something you're interested in, um, would, would love to hear from you. Say, yeah, Joe, I still have some questions about the Christian Sabbath. Um, it tends to be the commandment where there's some questions about. Um, interesting enough, um, you know, people don't usually argue with um, God saying don't murder people. It's not usually like, well, you know, I think some situations I should be able to murder people. That's usually not. That's usually not something that people have an issue with, um, just like the rest, like adultery and stealing and, you know, the rest of the ones. Sabbath is like, well, not so sure about the Sabbath. And so um, if you still have questions, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you think, hey, Joe, you've covered it, covered it a ton, you know, in three sermons, you know, some of those sermons were probably a little longer than needed to be anyway, would love for you to move on, you know, come and tell me too. So, you know, in inviting feedback on, um, on the sermon series. Next Sunday will be the last sermon, wherever we are in the Ten Commandments, and then we'll jump into Advent. Um, Advent will run for four Sundays. Um, I'm, I'm not usually that big on church calendars, obviously, um, but we stop three times a year in whatever we're preaching on. We stop at Easter to remember um, Jesus' death and resurrection. We stop at Christmas to remember Jesus' incarnation, and um, we stop for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, third or fourth Sunday in January, um, to remember um, that abortion is still um, legally um, sin in our country, and we want to see an end of it. So those are the times we stop um, in our normal sermon series. Um, one of the reasons we do that is not just for important topics, but our culture is still a Christian-ish culture, and there are probably plenty of people in your life who maybe don't profess to be Christians, but are still interested in Christianity. Um, and so if you were to say, hey, my pastor is preaching on the Fourth Commandment, um, they might be interested and want to come to here. Um, there's a little bit of a better on-road into, hey, he's doing a traditional sermon series on Advent. Somebody who's not a Christian might say, oh, I'd love to dip in on that. I remember going to church as a kid and would love to do that. So some of it is to make even um, the Word of God, which is always accessible um, and interesting, even more so um, to people who are skeptics or not yet Christians. And so um, stopping in an Advent series is also me trying to help you as much as possible um, with inviting others to come and hear about the gospel um, of Jesus. And so I encourage you to do that. Um, say, hey, come here at Advent series. You know, come for, for all four um, sermons and then hit our Christmas Eve service. We'd love to have you um, attend with me. Sometimes people are, are interested in doing that this time of year that aren't during um, other, other parts of the year. So it's my encouragement to you. Um, this morning we're in Hebrews 3 and 4. Yes, I'm going to read um, both chapters, 3 and 4. Um, Hebrews is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. Um, I've, I've, I've not preached on it yet, and, and all the books that I've preached on in my 15 years of pastoral ministry, um, partly because I think if I end up preaching Hebrews, I'll never get out of it. 
Um, and, and so there's just each passage is so rich. Um, and part of the, the beauty of Hebrews is the author is taking the whole of the Old Testament and he's showing how all of the Old Testament points to the coming of Christ. And so the first few chapters um, are the great superlatives of Hebrews where the author is looking at the comparison to Jesus and some of the heroes of the Old Testament. And so he'll go in and say, okay, listen, let's compare Jesus and Moses. You think Moses was awesome? Let's compare those two guys. Which one's better, Jesus or Moses? He's like, let me show you how much better Jesus is than Moses. And he goes to angels. Like, you think angels are awesome? Like these heavenly created spiritual beings that show up and people fall flat on their face and can't move? Well, let's compare angels and Jesus. Who's better? Jesus is exponentially better. And so he does that, but then he gets really practical and shows how the Lord God, through our faith in Jesus, um, leads us to a life of enduring faith in the midst of persecution. And so at one point, he even makes the comment about the people to whom he's writing that they joyfully endured the taking of their things. Like the, the government was coming into their home and taking away their belongings and possessions simply because they were Christians. Like you, you imagine for a moment if the U.S. government had a Christian tax. Just, you know, all right, if you're a Christian, 5% extra each April. I mean, how would we simply lose our minds if, if that was the case? And these Hebrews were being persecuted by the government and they were joyfully enduring the taking of their things, the taking of their possessions because of what they believed about Jesus. So Hebrews is just this, this amazing book. If, if what I'm saying right now entices you at all um, with the book of Hebrews, if, if what I work through, which I'll just be able to scratch the surface on um, this morning, and right now you're even wondering, Joe, how does that at all relate to the Sabbath? We're going to get there, um, much less the Sabbath and Jesus. Um, if, if you're interested at all, um, the McFarland's community group is jumping into the book of Hebrews. Um, and so um, there would be a great thing. Like, yeah, I'd love to have a Hebrews. I'm not attending a community group. I want to dip in and, and hear all about um, Hebrews. And so talk to Derek um, afterwards um, or Carrie, and they can tell you all about how you can dip into their community group on Wednesday nights in the book of Hebrews. And so, again, I'm going to be hitting, like, it's going to be very um, surface. And so before I read, so that you know where we're going, I'm going to tell you what the author is doing in these two chapters. And so as I read along, you'll know. Um, he's going to start with talking about the faithfulness of Jesus. And you're going to hear him make the comparison that he makes in um, chapter 1, that Jesus was more faithful than Moses was. Um, and that in a large part, Moses and the person of Moses and Moses' failure pointed to the one who would come after Moses, even that Moses said, hey, after me, look for somebody who's better than me. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the one to whom Moses pointed, the one who was faithful. And so the one faithful servant is in Jesus. Then what he's going to do, the author of Hebrews is going to make this comparison, and this is how he's going to get into the Ten Commandments, and especially the Fourth Commandment. He's going to talk about the first generation in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. And as we've talked, we've said the Ten Commandments fall into two places in the Bible, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. We've mentioned that the book of Deuteronomy literally means second law, Deuteronomos. That means this, this second telling of God's law. Because what had happened is that the first people who had come out of Egypt, who received God's law the first time, had fallen into rebellion, 
refused to go into the promised land. They got in the very cusp of the promised land and basically said, we have no confidence that God's going to clear the land for us. Um, God brought discipline and judgment upon them. They all died in the wilderness. So for 40 years, as that generation died off, the next generation, their children, were being brought up so that by Deuteronomy, now they're going into the promised land, second attempt, with the second generation, the children of the people who had died, the disobedient people, um, the only two people other than that second generation who were from the first generation who got to enter into the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. Because out of all the spies, Joshua and Caleb are like, wait, 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 we can take this. Our Lord's got this. Um, and the people decided against Joshua and Caleb's advice, rebelled against God. And so the first generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, perished in the wilderness. And so both Paul and here the author of Hebrews in the New Testament reflect often on that first generation as an example of a people who professed the name of Yahweh, very literally walked in his covenant, and yet rebelled and did not have a true heart. So this would be people who were not legitimately converted, who still professed to be Christians. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to say in this middle portion, he's going to say, hey, don't be like them. Don't be a people who only profess Jesus with your mouth and don't believe on him in your heart. And if you truly repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, it's going to show not only in your fruitfulness in this life, but you're going to have what the promised land what the promised land pointed to held out to you as a promise. The promised land was a picture of rest one day. Finally rest for our enemies. Finally rest in a place where we can dwell with God in peace. And the author of Hebrews is going to say the promised land was an illustration and not a fulfillment of the rest that God promised. And so he's going to say there is still a rest for the people of God that God promised for his people. There is still a rest that Christians experience in part and hold out. You, you still, in a very real way as a Christian, have the promised land in front of you. And it's not that we all get our passports and travel to Israel. Um, Israel is no longer the fulfillment of the promised land. The promised land is the new heavens and the new earth in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing the great hymn, On Jordan's stormy banks we stand. We still think of ourselves as pilgrims and exiles headed towards the promised land. And so... Concluding at the end of chapter 4 in Hebrews, now he's going to turn and show you how Jesus is the great high priest. He's the one who atones for your sins. So it's going to be great. Jesus is faithful. He's accomplished the law. Hey, make sure you endure. At the end of that, you're like, I'm not so sure. I have sin in my life. Hey, remember, Jesus is your great high priest. He's the one who atones for your sin. And right in the middle of there, we're going to talk about Sabbath. So this is a, be a, a fun sermon together, handle a little bit longer passage We'll jump in now. Hebrews chapter 3, reading chapters 3 and 4. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. 
but Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So now it says, therefore, as the Holy Scripture says, he's going to quote Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, that's that first generation, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, and he quotes again Psalm 95, 11, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now he gets into talking about that promise. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. This is, again, he says the gospel was preached to them in the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons I'm never going to preach Hebrews, because I want to stop right there and preach another sermon. I'll keep going. Not being mixed with faith in those who heard it, for we who have believed do not enter that do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they should not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has and this is the important verse, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. So he's spoken of the Sabbath, and then he quotes Genesis um, there too, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now he's going to do another verse, and again in this place. They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it's been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a, in New King James, it says rest. That word is actually in the Greek, Sabbath. ESV has Sabbath rest. So, therefore, remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then lastly, about Jesus the high priest. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, 
let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since this is the word of our God, why don't we pray before we consider it this morning. Father, thank you for this, your word, for the rest that we experience in Jesus Christ, your son, for the new heavens and the new earth that are hold, held out for us. We love you, Lord. Help us as we study your word together this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Sabbath rest. Amen. So, thank you for, um, for hanging in there for, um, for a long section. Hopefully my narration before and during um, helped you to see what the author of Hebrews was doing. To summarize at, at least what we are trying to say here in this sermon and this main point we're trying to make about this, um, the Sabbath, within the context of what was going on in the Old Testament, obviously it was a story meant to illustrate God's redemptive story through Jesus Christ. And so here the author of Hebrews is saying those promises were not met, not only when the first generation failed to enter the promised land, but even when they did cross the Jordan and enter the promised land, that promise was not complete because the promise was not intended to be primarily met and simply the Israelites gaining the promised land um, in the book of Joshua and Judges and then actually finally losing um, the promised land. But it was an illustration of God's intention to bless his people with the rest that comes with dwelling with God. And that was what the promised land was showing. It wasn't just, hey, we've got a cool spot and a place to call our own that will be ours forever. What was cool about the promised land was it was where God dwelled. And so when you had the whole of the promised land, it got a little bit more focused when you got to Jerusalem, the city where God chose to dwell. And within Jerusalem, there was a mountain. We got even more specific about God's um, presence. And on top of the mountain in Jerusalem, there was the temple where God dwelled. And within the temple of where God dwelled, there was even a more specific place, the Holy of Holies, where they only went once a year, where God's presence was most focused. And so within the land of Israel, where God's people were with them, there was a city where God was even more. Within the city, there was a mountain. Within the mountain, there was a temple. Within the temple, there was a Holy of Holies. And what we see moving into the New Testament, especially in the book of John, is Jesus saying what the temple foretold is complete in me. So he can say, destroy this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. And everybody's looking at the temple, the second temple, saying, how in the world are you going to do that? Like, you have no dirt movers, no cranes, no construction equipment. How can you tear down this temple and build it in three days? And John narrating said he was talking about his own body. That they literally tore down his body and in three days, it was raised again. So that Jesus, as perfect God and perfect man, is the conjunction. It is where God and his creation meet. And it's where God's people find union and communion with God. And so as we are united to Jesus, 
so we experience perfect communion with God and the peace and the promise of the rest that God has told us we would experience one day and promised all through the Old Testament, which they were so frustrated that they never got. Even when they got in with Joshua and you go through the period of the judges, towards the end of Joshua, you see him saying, hey, and they weren't able to clear the people out of the land. You get to Judges and it's just a complete mess. Like the book of Judges is just a a horrendous example of the rest that God promised was not there. I mean, you read through Judges and some of those stories you're like, how can this even be in the Bible? Like there are rated R portions of the book of Judges, of the people of God just doing horrendous things. Like you read about the life of Samson, you're like, really? Like he he was a judge? And so you, you see the failure of God's people to obtain that rest. And so for the author of Hebrews to come in and for him to say, there is still a rest in the promised land. And then to make that link and saying in verse 4 of chapter 4 of saying, he speaks of the seventh day this way. He quotes Genesis 2. And then he quotes Psalm 95.11 about the promised land. You have to see that he says that. The author is saying he spoke of the Sabbath land in terms, I mean the Sabbath day in terms of the land promise of rest. And so a part of the land and God's promise of land of rest has to do with the Sabbath day. So the rest that God promised in the land culminates in Jesus who is the very fulfillment of that land itself. And you hear there towards the end in verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews chapter 4 of the author of Hebrews saying, and there still is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So that for us, we experience Sabbath now and Sabbath later. We experience rest now and rest later. What's the rest we experience now? I talked about it in the confession of um, sin I had. We, we have a chance right now to rest from earning our righteousness before the Lord God. What it means to be converted and to be born again as a Christian means I'm no longer going to work for my own righteousness because I no longer believe I have to because I know through Jesus Christ I have received as a gift his works of righteousness on my behalf. And you heard about that in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3. He was the one that was 100% faithful. So even if we narrow it down to Sabbath observance, when God says, how have you obeyed the fourth commandment perfectly in order to earn righteousness? We say we haven't. But Jesus has on my behalf. Jesus has attended church and rested and worked perfectly on my behalf and has met God's whole law, including the fourth commandment, perfectly on my behalf, much better than Moses, exponentially better than Moses could have. Christ Jesus, because of his finished work, I now know the rest that comes that is only available for the people of God that I no longer have to work to prove myself before God. What this looks like in their conversations with folks who are not yet Christians, you ask them, hey, if you were to die today and come face to face with God, what would be your hope that God would let you into his heaven? What do people usually say? Well, I think I've done enough. I think I've lived a good enough life, at least in comparison to someone else. That is a scary trust in your own works. 
I think, I'm, I'm unsure, nobody says, I am absolutely sure I've done enough in this life to earn righteous. I, I think, I hope, I've done my best, and I think that God will look at what I consider was my best and let me in. Whereas his word is very clear that what he requires for righteousness is perfect obedience. And so to come to someone who is not yet a Christian saying, hey, isn't it an exhausting life? Isn't it an exhausting life to always feel like you are trying to live your life so that the day you meet God, you can say, I finally hope, at least in comparison to other people, that I've done enough. How would you like to set aside all of that vain striving, all of that morality in your life to try and earn it before God, and finally trust in Him? I can remember I, um, I, I tend to, as you know if you've ever had lunch with me, frequent some of the same restaurants over and over again so that I can meet some of the servers um, and share the gospel um, with them. And um, one of the servers I talked to in one of the local restaurants in, um, in Culpeper was describing to me um, this strange conjunction of kind of Hindu Buddhism. Um, and I was, I was asking her what she believed about how you earn a good life in terms of Hindu Buddhism. Um, and she says, you know, do good, go up there. Do bad, go down there. Um, and, you know, she's still working on English, um, obviously, but was able to articulate what she thought and what her hope was. Um, was able just to talk to her briefly, like, isn't that exhausting? Like, do good, go up there, do bad, go down there. Like, that is a life of fear and exhaustion and endless striving after a righteousness you're never sure that you could meet. And so what Christ Jesus has done and providing us rest has not only said, hey, if you obey me, you're going to take 24 hours off and not do your vocation and get physical rest, but in me... And in me alone, you have righteousness with God that is separate from your works. None of your works matter. There's a righteousness that you now have that I give to you. You can rest when it comes, for, comes to working for God's approval. You can rest when it comes to trying to craft your life in such a way that on your day of death, you come before God and hope for the best. You can know that you have God's delight and you have God's blessing, not because God has looked at the law and said, no, it doesn't matter, but because God has looked at the, the exacting, precise nature of his law and instead is completely filled, fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of everything that the land represented. Why did the people get kicked out of the land? Because they sinned and um, were apostate. They, they rejected God. Wanted a king like the nations, did all kinds of things, raised other idols. Um, and so the Lord God continued to be merciful to them, continued to be merciful. They could not, through their Israelite obedience, secure a land on earth that was by their own works of righteousness. And God did that on purpose so that they would not hope in righteousness in this place. That instead they would look at all attempts to earn righteousness and say, I cannot do that. I'm going to end up exhausted spiritually and physically, but that God has given me a promise through Jesus that I am right before him by his mercy and by his grace. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the Sabbath rest of his people. Do you know that Sabbath rest? Or do you constantly live under the thought, God is judging me every day based on how I'm doing? The classic example from Jerry Bridges, he gives to... Um, forgot which book it was. All his books are great. They read all of Jerry Bridges' books. Um, but one of the ones he says, like, picture a day. You wake up, 
you have a great morning. You do your quiet time. On the way into work, you listen to, you know, the Christ Covenant Spotify hymnal. You just listen to all that. And you get into work, and you have a great morning. You're very productive. Around lunchtime, one of your, Christ- one of your coworkers who's not a Christian comes to you and says, hey, I know you're a Christian. Would you share the gospel with me? Um, I want to become a Christian too. Second scenario, you sleep through your alarm. You don't do a quiet, quiet time. Um, you thought about tuning in the Spotify, Christ Cuff, Hymnal, but somebody, you know, cut you off and you started cussing at them, which I know none of you would do, hypothetically speaking. On the road, you have a major fit of road rage, um, driving up 29 or wherever you're going. You get into work, um, you know, you're distracted all throughout work. You get around to lunchtime and one of your coworkers says, hey, I know you're a Christian. Um, would you tell me the gospel because I want to become a Christian? Question is, which of those sharing of the gospel is God more likely to bless? We're tempted to say the one in which I earned him to bless it at that moment, where the fact of the matter, the power of the gospel comes in telling the truth of what Jesus has accomplished and God saving people apart from their own works, even blessing your evangelism apart from your own works. You don't obligate God to save your coworker because you've had a great morning. You don't, obl- you don't add to the, 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 the efficaciousness of the gospel. You don't make your gospel sharing more powerful because what do you have done? The power is in God alone apart from our works or the works of the person that we're sharing the gospel with. We have this habit of importing works righteousness back into our life. So why would you want to um, listen to the Christ Cup hymnal? Why would you want to um, read your scriptures in the morning? Why would you want to serve God in your vocation? Is it because you're hoping he will bless you or because you realize he already has? One is a life of rest that leads to all kinds of work for his name, but it starts with realizing you can rest in Christ. The other is a life of exhaustion because you think you're constantly trying to earn it. You're constantly trying to add to God's power with your own works. So this whole rest principle that God has woven, not just into every six, every seventh day you rest, six days work, not only in the promised land, finds its culmination in Jesus, that he is actually the one through whom we can finally rest. And the gospel we give to our coworker is, aren't you spiritually exhausted? How would you like to find rest? That's why Jesus said we did it. Come to me. All of you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. So when we stop as Christians on the seventh day to stop, it's not just that God realizes, hey, I don't want you to get sick. I want you to be healthy. You know, I want you to be able to have time to attend church on Sundays because I think it's probably a pretty good day. We are preaching the gospel of rest that we've received through Jesus. We are standing within the limits of the promised land even as we hope for that promised land to come. That's the second aspect of it. Do we know sinless lives now? Absolutely not. Even now, as we've talked about things, are there days that you have awful days where you fall into sin? Absolutely. Are there times that we walk in disobedience as Christians? Yes. 
We cling to God's mercy and grace in this life. We experience spiritual rest in part, even though we hope for the day where God will dry every tear and take away every illness when we finally experience that final Sabbath rest in Jesus Christ on the day that we're in the true promised land and all things are made new, which is a huge message that we need to hear. Again, I'll try not to preach like four or five different sermons in this one. American commercialism, especially during November and December. Actually, now it's even earlier than that. I think I saw Christmas up in Walmart like October 2nd. American commercialism is trying to sell you heaven now. And the, the, the deceptive, horrific beauty of that is that you'll never get it. So people can sell you these life hacks and these tweaks and these little robots that can go around your house and vacuum all your carpets and cameras that go out of your doorbells and refrigerators that talk to you and all of these things. They say, we can give you heaven now. We can give you rest from all of your labors. Whether it's having to look up in a dictionary what a word means or who won what that game or vacuuming your carpets. We can free you up from all of your labors and all of your work through technology. All you have to do is buy what we have to give you, and you won't experience heaven this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But people will sell it to you, or at least will say they'll try to sell it to you. And there is an ache in the human heart that says, things are not perfect yet, and I don't have the rest that I experience, that I, that I want to have on that day. And the beauty of the Christian gospel is it says the Bible talks about that. There's this crazy version of Christianity that's not Christianity that says if you believe hard enough and you faith hard enough and you do enough things that you'll have health and wealth now. It's called the health and wealth gospel. People are preaching on TV right now as we're preaching and and studying God's word here um, in Culpeper Christian School. If you do enough, you can experience heaven now. The gospel is, you can know union with Jesus now that brings you life and health and amazing celebration in this life, but it's still going to be really hard. You're still going to sin and experience the consequences of sin. There's still going to be cancer, and there's going to be illness, and there's going to be family events where Thanksgiving's supposed to be awesome, but that person comes, and then a conflict happens, and then you don't talk to people for like two months, hypothetically speaking. We don't experience heaven on this earth. But it's promised to us in Jesus Christ and what he's promised to bring to us on that day. And so we have that. So when this life doesn't fulfill, it's funny, the Bible talks about this. Now we know who to look for. It is this Christ. And so when we come to look at these various things, it's a little bit distracting, isn't it? What if I do this? Sounds a little bit better. I can just talk loudly. When we look at this particular passage and we come to seventh day and worshiping on the seventh day, every time we stop and we confess ourselves to be Sabbatarians, it's not that we're confessing ourselves to be legalists who are doing this old Jewish project. We're confessing ourselves to stand on the truth and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, that he alone gives us rest. And for us to take one day off in seven is a crazy affront to our culture that says work, work, work so that you can buy rest. Work, work, work so you can fill your bank account enough so you can buy all of the technology to give you rest. 
But we can say we have already received from God through Jesus' work, at Jesus' expense, the rest that only we know as Christians. And yes, we live in a broken world, but we wait for the day that we experience true rest, bodies that are finally made new, where cancer and sniffles and ear infections are all gone, where even tears are done from our eyes. We long for that day. So that's what the Sabbath preaches. That's what we say as Christians when we celebrate the Christian Sabbath and we stop one day in seven to do that. And so my encouragement to you is the same here. On the two bookends in the Hebrews 3 and 4, look to Jesus who is your righteousness and who is your high priest, the one who has made the sacrifice for you and who is the sacrifice. And live your life as one of faithful repentance and living for Christ Jesus, not like the first generation, but like the second generation. Live with endurance and obedience. That's where it comes to the Sabbath. We still have to do it. If you say, I believe in the rest that Jesus provides, but you don't obey the Sabbath, it's like, well, which generation are you? Are you the first generation or second generation? The first generation said, yeah, Sabbath's awesome, but didn't believe. It works its way out in our obedience that is motivated on God's grace. Because God has given us rest, we work. The world says work so that you can earn rest. We're completely backwards from the world and the way that we operate because of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And so would we be joyful seventh-day celebrators, not because it sounds good to have a vacation once every seven days, but because we believe the gospel of Jesus, who is our seventh-day rest, and holds out to us that rest that we one day will experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this, the gospel that we have, that you've woven into so many different ways. It isn't just a a 12-page tract that we read about how we can come to faith, but this entire book from front to back, woven into our calendars of six days of work and a seventh day of rest, and the complexity of it it that points to the simplicity of the glory and wonder of Jesus. Father, help us to experience that rest that we have in Christ through faith alone in his name. Give us joyful rest and work in his name. We pray through Christ Jesus. Amen. We take a minute to respond in song.